Welcome to the Rename Podcast. I am, as always, with me on the show tonight, I have Sam. Hello. Sam and I are going to do a bit of a two-hander this evening. Uh, we're going to talk to you about uh, news and pop culture as per usual. We're going to discuss Masters of Sex at the halfway point of its uh, season. And we're going to d- return to the Rename Movie Club to discuss With Nail and I. So stick with us throughout the hour. I think Sam and I should be enough entertainment for all of you out there. Isn't that right, Sam? Uh, I don't know about that. Don't <laughs> oversell it. It's it's gonna be a bad show, guys. That should I should I say that instead? I think it's better to deliver low. Yeah. If I just tell you all it's gonna be a terrible podcast and you keep listening, it probably won't be that bad, right? And then you won't you probably won't regret wasting your hour on the show and we'll have a good time, hopefully. So it's gonna be the worst episode ever. Yay. Uh, yay. Um with that, why don't we kick off the news? Sam, why don't we start with your story for the week? Sure, I don't know. What is my story of the week? How I Met Your Mother? Yes. Sure, well, you know, we never can pass up talking about How I Met Your Mother on this podcast because it's it's endlessly entertaining to talk about how horrible it's become and all the choices they've made. And it was just announced that How I Met Your Mother will do an entire episode in rhyme. Everyone's favorite way to watch television shows. Which is why Dr. Seuss had so many long-running television programs. Exactly. Though, to be fair, they did make those Dr. Seuss animated movies. And most of them were pretty good. Yes, they were They also good. made the film In Search of Dr. Seuss with Kathy Najimy that I quite enjoyed as a child. Oh, yeah. I actually remember that. It was I fun, remember right? remember that. Yes. Part of it was animated, part of it had a live, there was a live action cat in a hat, they had an Oh, The Places You'll Go uh, musical sequence. It was good times. Funhead so, by all. But but back to the actual news story at hand, I think this is a terrible idea, Sam. I do too. And it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how unfunny it'll be. If they couldn't, they had the freedom of not having to rhyme their jokes... And rhyme Barney's misogynism. Now that it's all going to be in rhyme, all the forced crap. Yeah. Uh, Just think, like, for every episode of the past four or five years, they could have written literally anything. They had no constraints whatsoever except the ones they put on themselves, and it's been unfunny. So imagine with, for, although who knows, maybe with all the constraints, it'll be like uh, that Lars von Trier documentary, The Five Obstructions, and they'll come up with something beautiful. I don't think they're going to come up with anything beautiful. Nor do I. I think it's going to be terrible. Do we know when the episode's going to air yet? I saw the story, but I don't think it said which episode it would be. Let me see. No, I don't know if it says when it's happening. I'm sure. Um, hopefully it'll be. What if it was the series finale? And they're like, <laughs> we're doing the series finale in rhyme. Look out, I'm Seinfeld. I'm really glad I- I have no brother. Four kids, I have just met the mother. End of series. There you go. It was Robin, kids. Robin's the mother. I fucked Robin, even though she's barren. That's the twist. She wasn't barren? They actually, like, readdressed her uh, inability to have children recently. Yeah, um... Listeners don't know this because they are not inside my head and haven't talked to you as recently as I have probably. 
but I'm Probably. several weeks behind on High Mention Mother and hoping to possibly escape its horrible thrall. You're completist. You're going to have to watch the show. You're going you know, to. Everyone always says that to me, but like... And you always watch. Right. You've, you've convinced me back from the ledge. I've been at this ledge with High Mention Mother several times, and Sam or Chris or someone has convinced me back from the edge. Uh, not this time. Probably. But... but <laughs> there is zero reason to believe you Every are. time I get a, a week behind, I'm, I think I'm three weeks behind at this point, and every time I get a further episode behind, it's like a further desperate hope that I will never have to watch the episodes that I've missed. Well, I think... Uh... I think it's kind of sadder if you don't finish watching because think of all the shitty episodes you've sat down to watch and for what you know at least like if i was like hey i'm not going to finish it it's like i've wasted my time i would if i if i knew i was going to just quit now i would have quit long ago yeah but here's the thing is i could i can either you know it's either a sunk cost or i think <laughs> what 19 or however many more episodes we have at this point uh more episodes into it and then i'm even more pissed like Every episode of the season I've seen so far made me apoplectic. I was like, like blood be- blood what? Uh, vessels were bursting in my head at each episode at how much I disliked it. So, I don't know, man. But what's 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 you know fifteen, nineteen more? Do episodes, I let this show give me know, a heart attack at this point? The show won't kill you. <laughs> it probably won't kill me. Um, but, uh, yeah. so yeah, Barney, Barney was nice enough to remind us that he doesn't like fat chicks this oh, week. Oh God. I was, and he wanted to make sh- he wanted to make sure Robin's mother wasn't super fat because, you know, if Robin became fat, that was their fight this Barney week. Would leave her. Huh? That was their fight this week. Um, well the fight this week is that Barney's mom doesn't like Robin and, and there's talk of, um, Robin's mom coming in, but she doesn't come in because we we're never going to meet Robin's mom. Um, and but Barney's like, oh boy, I hope she's not fat because that means you're going to be fat, and if that happens, that's bad. And and the episode resolves in the dumbest way in that uh, Barney's mom and Robin are fighting, and Barney and um, Barney's mom makes some passing comment about like their her grandchildren, and Robin's like, "I can't have children." And then Barney's mom feels really bad, and then later they like they hug, and then they're they're done fighting. Wow, good story, how much mother? Before we move on to our, our next news story, I do I just want to say like once again how colossally stupid it is to send her the entire season around the wedding, only to have every single episode be a fight further proving that Barney and Robin probably shouldn't get married. Like, within four or five episodes, they're just going to be fighting about, like, what color the drapes in their hotel room are. Um. Well, the episodes have been like, if we can't if we can't agree on this, should we even be getting married? And the answer every time is no! <laughs> like, very clearly not. But- You've had six fights on the Friday, on like 48 hours before your wedding. Right now, I don't even think we're in the second 24 hours. I mean, I feel like this is all like in a day or so. Yeah, they've they've had like they've been at the at the Farhampton Inn for like four hours, and they've had like seven right. different fights. <laughs> Actually, this might be day two. I it don't know. It can't possibly be a day know. two yet, right? It's got to be because they had an episode where they had to sneak into Lily's apartment while she was sleeping. Oh, okay. 
But of course, she could have been day sleeping because she's drinking yeah, a lot. Yeah, because Lily's giving herself alcohol poisoning at this wedding. Yeah, I, I wonder if someone's counted the amount of drinks Lily's had in this period of time, which would surely kill I her. I guarantee you uh, someone is doing that math. Um, and also fucking... It's so sad that, like, Jason Siegel can't even be there. Like, he's going to be there for the finale, I'm sure. But it's like, he's on this stupid road trip. Because I'm sure they had to work around his schedule because he's doing, like, more interesting things with his life. I would like it if they were working around his schedule, but his schedule was just, like, he spent most of every day, like, in sweatpants. Um, basically beating his character from Forgetting Sarah Marshall. And just not wanting to be on the set of How Much Mother because the show's gotten so bad, like... He's not even shooting a movie right now. He's just like, eh, I don't want to be there. Because he clearly, like, he made it very obvious he didn't want to do another season of the show. And they were just like, if we give you enough money, you'll say yes. And he was like, that's correct. We own you. Eh, if I was Jason Siegel and I was like, I've, I've been on this show for far longer than I would have liked to be anyway. It's been bad for a while. And you're going to give me, I don't know, however many millions of dollars he's making for this season. I'd probably do it too. Okay, we should probably move on um, and discuss the newest rumor that uh, Star Trek, the film franchise, is going to be taken over by Joe Cornish, director of Attack the Block. It sounds like we won't see J.J. Uh, Abrams shepherding the two largest franchises I- uh, in science fiction film at the same time, uh, because it appears... This probably just means he's directing episode eight, doesn't it? Uh... Well... So I think they want to start shooting Star Trek next summer, which means it doesn't necessarily mean he's directing Episode 8, but let's be honest, he's probably directing Episode 8. They could have had... They could have anyone, they could have anyone or, good. Um, so he's... Other than Attack the Block, it looks like he's directed uh, TV stuff. Uh, any TV stuff of uh, note? Um, the Adam and Joe Show, which I'm not familiar with. Um... A TV series pilot called Blunder, Comedy Lab, one episode, Making Little Britain 2, TV movie documentary, so that's probably like some TV movie version of Little Britain. Um, Little Britain fans can correct us. (laughs) And he's done Attack the Block. Well, I haven't seen Attack the Block. You haven't seen it, right? It was supposed to be good. I haven't seen it. I wanted to see it. I have nothing against it. Uh, It's it's on my near immediate to-do list, but... That near immediate to do list is probably like a hundred movies long, so someday I will watch it. Probably we won't talk about it on the podcast unless it somehow makes its way into the movie club. Um, but I think I think like for me the most interesting thing about this is it wasn't clear. It, I I kind of assumed that JJ Abrams might be done with Star Trek just because of the scheduling, but it wasn't clear to me that that was the case until the story leaked. Um, I don't know. Do you feel better about him not taking on the next Star Trek considering he's doing Star Wars? Or how do you, like, or does it just, it doesn't matter to you at all? Uh, it doesn't matter to me at all. <laughs> just because, like, I just, I don't know. I feel like Star Trek, the first one was, like, really good, I thought. I thought it was, like, a lot of fun. I liked it a lot. I was really happy with it. The second one was, like, pretty forgettable. So... If the third one is just, like, okay, that's a lateral move, if not a positive move. And, I mean, I guess theoretically it could be worse. 
but I don't know. You know, it's nice having new blood in there. Yeah. And I think I like the idea of like injecting new blood. Like Joe Cornish, he's like a guy who's, you know, made a movie a lot of people liked and now he's getting a chance on a big stage. I think that's a good thing. Definitely. And I think the problem is it's, it's happening with Star Trek three and, and it's just so that JJ Abrams can, can continue doing Star Wars, I assume. And I don't know. J.J. Abrams is just kind of boring to me. Yeah. The other day I was just thinking, like, it, when when they announced that they were getting Michael Arndt off of the script and J.J. Abrams was going to co-write it with the uh, guy who did Empire Strikes Back, I was just like, I was so disappointed. It's just like, he's going to do everything across the board, and J.J. Abrams is remarkably unremarkable to me. Yeah. I think he gets a lot of credit for stuff he's produced and he's like created things like he created Alias and I guess he was probably he was the showrunner. Yeah, he was involved in Alias uh, for our I think I don't know about all of its run but a lot of its run. And I Um, liked Alias. Uh, That's Alias is actually probably by far and away my favorite J.J. Abrams uh, product. He gets a lot of credit for Lost even though Lost was barely his. He directed two episodes of Lost and was a producer on it. But Lost was Damon Lindelof's baby. Um, And then he directed Mission Impossible 3. And then Star Trek. Like, literally, his... Before he directed Star Trek, his his credits were Mission Impossible 3. Mm -hmm. Uh, Which is probably my third favorite Mission Impossible movie. (laughs) It's just like when he when he took over Star Trek as director, people talked about him like, oh my god, J.J. Abrams, of course. But before, I'm reading literally his IMDb page before Star Trek, Anatomy of Hope, an episode of The Office, guest director on Jimmy Kimmel Live, Mission Impossible 3, three episodes of Alias and two minor segments uncredited on two episodes on a two-parter of Alias. The two-parter pilot of Lost, and the two-part and two parts of Felicity. That is literally his entire director's credit, and I think he get he gets like a ton of credit for stuff, mostly as a producer. Yeah. And I think he's good at that. Sure, I, he's, I mean, um, he's got a, a much more proven track record as a producer. I think he's a creator of Fringe, which people like. Um, I don't know how many episodes he's actually written of. Did he? I didn't. I didn't know uh, that he was really. I knew he was a creator, but I didn't know how heavily he was involved at all. It looks like he has six episodes written by. So that's a okay yeah. amount. Um, he wrote three episodes of Undercovers. Remember I, that show? I do. No, <laughs> I remember it being exceedingly mediocre, and I believe I wrote that something to that effect uh, on our website. <laughs> he wrote an uncredited episode of Avatar: The Last Airbender. What if we just spent the entire um, rest of the podcast you reading everything on JJ Abrams' IMDb page? It's just like I don't understand where the like he is worshipped. Hey, you and I. Like if people if people were like this, like worshiping George Lucas makes more sense than worshiping JJ Abrams. To oh, be yeah. honest. Um. If you- and I don't think JJ Abrams is even a bad director. Like Super Eight was half of a really good movie. <laughs> um. 
I thought Star Trek again was really good. No. I just I don't understand why he's like number one science fiction god. Yeah, I mean, I think I think probably the biggest fight we ever had on the abbreviated podcast here was when this news first broke, and uh, I mean, you and I were on the same page, same side of this from the beginning. I just I've always found him. I'll I'll go so far as to say underwhelming. I thought Star Trek was really good, but part of the reason I liked Star Trek so much is because I was surprised at how much like at how good it was considering it was J.J. Abrams and he had never really done anything that blew me away before. Um, Into Darkness, I thought was flat out bad. Like, you you said it was mediocre and forgettable. I thought Cumberbatch was awesome, and the rest of it was like, it was a bad movie in a lot of ways. Um, Super 8 was half of a good movie, like you said. So, like, I don't know. His, his track record at this point is like, a Mission Impossible movie I did not like, a Star Trek movie I did not like, a Steven Spielberg ripoff I sort of liked, and a Star Trek movie I quite liked. I mean, most of his, you know, most of his credit that he's gotten has been producing popular sci-fi type shows like Fringe and Lost. Yeah. And I understand that. Like, I understand. I didn't. I haven't watched Fringe, but I understand it's like it's very well liked and kind of like a cult show, or it became a cult show. And Lost, I really enjoyed for most of its run, but. You know, I don't know if he deserves the most credit for loss. I, I, I'll go and so I hate to, to I hate to like de- definitely doesn't. <laughs> I just I you know I hate to like like nitpick his you know freaking IMDb page, but it's like how many how many people think like he directed Cloverfield? Do you Everyone. know what I mean? I, that's like it's, I don't even care about Cloverfield like at all, but I have to I have to make that point all the time when people bring him up. It's just like this weird thing where, like J.J. Abrams as producer, kind of like meshed into J.J. Abrams as director, and people are just like, you know, the the trailers will go like from J.J. Abrams or something, and they're like, oh, it's J.J. Abrams, he did Cloverfield, which wasn't very good. Right. Yeah, I just I'm out of I'm out of step with uh, the larger. Not even I don't know not not a, not the critical community but apparently the larger public on J.J. Abrams because people like him a lot they love him everybody and loves in Hollywood him. he's getting the big jobs and he's he's getting the job that probably uh, the most film fans hopes and dreams are are hinging on for well I won't say film fans I'll say Star Wars geeks because um, I imagine there are plenty of film people who are just rolling their eyes at the idea of having some sort of Star Star Wars movie that's not going to be good. Uh, hopefully it will be good. I I don't want to lose hope yet. I don't want to lose hope until... Well, you know, I'm going to see it either way. So I don't want to lose hope until the movie's over. I think Star I think Star Wars can be good. It could be great. It could be amazing. I'm just... I, my argument with about J.J. Abrams is he just hasn't, like, wowed me yeah, with I mean, any like, of the movies he's I, directed. Really. I think the exact point you were making. Star Wars Episode Seven could be the time he wows me. Like... I don't think he's a bad director. I think somebody needs to be like, maybe stop the lens flares. But beyond that, he's generally very competent. Um, and I was, I had more faith when I thought, like, I like Michael Arndt a lot. This is going to be a great script for the movie. But, you know, Kasdan's good. So it's possible that this will be a really great script and that he'll knock it out of the park and this will be in, you know five years we'll be saying this was the movie that turned us around on jj abrams but at the same time 
Kazdan, when was the last time he wrote a good movie? Uh, a long time ago. He wrote Star Wars uh, Episode Six: Return of the Jedi, 30 years ago. Yeah. And he wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark. This guy has got, you know, Empire Strikes Back, and he wrote Empire, I guess. But he wrote, what did he write? He wrote ago. some really bad stuff. Uh, in the last decade or so. Well, he wrote Dreamcatcher, with, which I think was like, notoriously it. super shitty. Yeah. Um, there's a movie called Darling Companion from 2012 that has Kevin Klein, Diane Keaton, and Diane Reist, which makes wow. it sound like, are you 61 years old <laughs> but still believe in love? It also makes it sound like a movie that, if it was even sort of okay, we would have heard of a thousand times, right? You'd think so. It came out last year. Like, it came out last year as that cast full of Oscar winners. Listen, and... it has fucking... It, it, beyond the people I just said, it has Richard Jenkins, Elizabeth Moss, Mark Duplass, Sam Shepard. What? I don't know why we didn't hear of this movie. It must have been horrible. It, yeah, it has to be, like, like horrendous or... Because all of those people have their champions. I am a lot of those people's champions. Find out more about this movie. But oh, man. Well, it has a 22% on Rotten Tomatoes. Well, there we go. How could it be so bad? <laughs> I've asked that question about a lot of movies with great casts that have ended up being terrible. Um, we should probably move on since we started talking about Joe Cornish and immediately derails to our, our uh, semi-regular J.J. Abrams is not that great rant, which I'm sure... Listeners will get to hear several more times before episode seven comes out and tries to change our minds. Um, yes, but but to be clear, both of us hope and pray that Star Wars is awesome. I don't think anything would make us happier. Oh yeah, I we're I not am rooting not for anything on Star Wars. I am a huge Star Wars fan. My hopes and dreams are locked up in episode seven as much as any of the rest of you guys. I've been burned before, but like, I am ro- I am rooting for it to be awesome. I want it to be the greatest Star Wars movie ever. I mean, I don't think that's possible, but that would be fantastic. That would, that's my hope. Um, and I think there's a chance J.J. Abrams can do it, so he just needs to wow me. Uh, fingers crossed on that. I'm sure we'll talk about J.J. Abrams and Star Wars a whole lot uh, in the next couple years. How about, how now, about once they announce, like, one cast member, you know? Like, the news is going to trickle out. For years, and then by the time the news stops trickling, there's going to be a teaser trailer. Well, supposedly the movie is not moving from 2015, despite the fact that everyone wants it to. Uh, everyone on the production side, rather. What do you mean um, everyone wants it to move? Move uh, back or move up? Uh, so Kathleen Kennedy and J.J. Abrams apparently asked Disney to push to 2016 because they just switched the uh, screenwriters, and they're basically, you know, they may be starting from scratch. It's not clear how much uh, they're going to change from what they originally had. So they asked for Disney to push it, and Disney said, hell no, there will be a Star Wars movie in 2015. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, other news that I, apparently I can deliver to you is Disney's decided, like, they want to start making money off of Star Wars as soon as humanly possible. Uh, that sound, This sounds like the first chapter in, how was the new Star Wars movie a disaster? Yeah. Because you know what? If they are going to do a rewrite, they need time. Like, at least give them time to do it. Right. Like, um, if, the, if the script needs to be rewritten, maybe it's a good idea to let them do that. 
Although, I, I think we've talked about this before as well. Um, I'm not sure how much the quality of it really matters to Disney right now. You'd think that it would matter a lot, but they know they're going to make a gajillion dollars on... <laughs> hey, how much did the quality seven. matter, you know, when Phantom Menace came out? Right, like... It, it's just, it's going to make an endless amount of money either way, and if Disney feels like they're taking a risk on losing people and making shitty Star Wars movies, they won't lose anyone for Episode 7. Episode 7 could be the worst Star Wars movie ever, and we would all still see it because it's Episode 7. Uh, and then they could, you know, take more time with Episode 8 if they need to. So, I think Disney is, has decided they just want to start cashing those Star Wars checks. Um, and from a business perspective, it's probably not a bad idea. From an artistic perspective, it's probably going to be disastrous. Or, well, I won't say probably, because again, I really hope it's not. Um, but it's possible that it will be disastrous. And that won't be fun. Anyway. Oh, it's a grim future we live in. <laughs> we live, we live in, in the future. future. We basically live in the future from THX 1138. Um, on that note, we should shift to discuss our final news story of the evening um holy shit before we move on officially okay. <laughs> what's crazy is i'm just like messing around on rotten tomatoes <laughs> dreamcatcher had a 30 <laughs> percent more people liked dreamcatcher than I, i've never Pippen. i've never met anyone who likes dreamcatcher and by met i also mean like all of the reviews i read uh for the film yeah he's had a pretty rough run on, on Rotten Tomatoes, I think at a certain like he was like hot out of the the gate, and then he's cooled off a bit. But hey, you know what? J.J. Abrams was one of the twelve twenty writers on Armageddon, so we're good, folks. So we're gonna get fuck another. Fuck the guy who wrote Toy Story three and Little Miss Sunshine. We could have had him, but no, we got. One of the 12 writers of Armageddon and the screenwriter of Dreamcatcher. We're in good hands. Uh, okay, moving on. Amazon, uh, I think we talked about this when it was happening in the spring. Um, Amazon released a bunch of comedy pilots and let people watch and vote on all of them to see which ones they would pick up. I watched all of these and voted on them back in the day. I don't know, Sam, did you watch any of them? Uh, which ones? The what? Amazon pilots. Oh, no, 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 no. Absolutely <laughs> I heard they were pretty much, across the board, terrible. That's not true. They were mostly oh, you know what? terrible. You know what? I, did, I watched the Onion one. I watched the Onion News Network one. Which was really good, I thought. I wouldn't say really good. Well, I would say it was okay, kind of half-baked. Okay, like a lot of comedy pilots. Like, for a comedy pilot, that's one thing is like Amazon doing comedy pilots seem like a dumb move because comedy pilots are notoriously like not that good and it's hard to do a great comedy pilot. My problem, I remember my problem I felt like with um, with the Onion pilot was that it was like such an absurdist world that I had like no tangible attachment to any of the characters because it was like all literally insane. And it's not that you can't have a show with insane characters because, you know, look at, like, I think it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Those are like well-drawn characters who are, who happen to be like insane, horrible people. But the characters I felt like on, um, it's like if every character was Dr. Spichemin on 30 Rock, <laughs> like if everyone was like fucking insane, 
it, it felt too much like like a Naked Gun movie, and I don't think that's sustainable for a TV show. Yeah, I was I was willing to give that one a go. I actually I think that's the one I was most excited about. Um, but what we got instead were uh, Alpha House and Betas. Um, Alpha House. Are, well, wait, those shows are not related. They are not related, despite oh, the fact boy. that they both have Greek letters uh, that are right next to each other in their names. Uh, Alpha House is the Gary Trudeau, uh, the creator of Doonesbury's, um, basically like comedic counterpart to House of Cards. It's four Republican congressmen living in a house together. One of them is John Goodman. Um, Betas is computer geeks trying to strike it big. Uh, neither of these was a really great pilot. I liked Alpha House mostly because it had John Goodman in it. And like, if you put John Goodman in front of a camera for long enough, he'll make something work. So... I could see it turning into a good show, but it was not a very good pilot. Um, betas, I care even less about. Uh, but Amazon has announced these are the two they're going forward with. Both will premiere in November, and they're actually doing an interesting thing. The reason I wanted to talk about this with you, Sam, is they're hybriding uh, between the Netflix model and the standard cable model. Uh, the first three episodes of both shows will be available to everyone immediately on the day of the premiere. Um, and then... After that, episodes will come out once a week uh, for, I think, just Amazon Prime customers. Um, not interested. <laughs> uh, the, the problem is, it's I, I don't think I have enough reason to get Amazon Prime. I mean, maybe these shows are like, they call this system sellers when talking about um, like gaming consoles. Like, if there's a game so good that's only for that console, you buy the console. Um, and a game like that is called a system seller, which means you're willing to plunk down a lot more money to get something that's worth less, or in this case, no extra it's money. It's the Halo or the Grand Theft Auto. Precisely. Well, Grand Theft Auto isn't a system seller in that you can get it for both systems. But you used to not be able to, right? That was a thing? Uh, yeah, it used to be PlayStation only. Right. So yes, okay. that is a good example. Or Halo. Halo is also a good example. I'm full um, of good examples. Those are like two of the only video games I can name. Um, see, that's like, I feel like HBO was able to, over years, and, and partially with The Sopranos specifically, you know, that's how HBO sells its subscriptions. Yeah. I think a lot of HBO subscriptions, it's not like, oh, I want to see, you know, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, you know, 14 times a week. It's, they want the TV shows that you can't get anywhere else. And... These two shows, they have to be really good for me to pay for Amazon. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's there's just, like, there's no way I'm paying for Amazon Prime to see these shows based on, I mean, if I watched all three episodes of Alpha House and it was really good, I still don't think I would subscribe to Amazon Prime. <laughs> like, it's, I can't imagine uh, that the silly little sitcom starring John Goodman as a Republican congressman is going to be worth, uh, I don't even know how much Amazon Prime costs, but it's more than I'm going to pay for that show. No. No, not at all. <laughs> um, I, what is, what was Betas about again? Betas is, it's like Silicon Valley geeks um, trying to strike it big. I don't even, I don't recall beyond the fact that they're like computer geeks and there's like a, there's some hint at like future love interests and like it was just, that was one of my least favorites I recall. Well, I didn't see either of the pilots, so I can't really make a 
educated, you know, decision like, about uh, this. This is another one that I don't think would have worked in the long term at all, and actually wasn't even that good as a pilot. But I like the the BB Newworth uh, as uh, Ariana Huffington musical that, that they did, just because it was BB Newworth in a musical, and I thought that was interesting. That sounds pretty crazy, and also very. I'd imagine that be incredibly difficult to do. Yeah. And, I mean, it was all original songs, too, which I think I liked, but, again, would be incredibly unsustainable. So it's not surprising to me that one didn't get picked up. But um, did, it, did fans vote on this? Yeah, or so, was it... so the way it happened is whoever watched the pilots, like, when you finished the pilots, you got a survey that was, like, rank the show on this number. Like, would you like to watch it again? Like, talk about these parameters. What did you like? What did you not like? And based on the responses they got, these are the two that got picked up. Well, everyone knows the American people are always right. Yeah, America America got what it deserved um, in Alphas and Betas, or Alpha House and Betas, apparently. Ah, um, uh, that's going to be such a problem. No, it won't, because we'll probably never talk about this again. Beta House, <laughs> Alphas. Alphas was also a show, right, with David Strathairn? Uh, uh, yes, it was. <laughs> so. my, my fantasy Mr. Freeze. <laughs> Yeah, uh, which you have more than sold me on. I wish that was going to be the case someday. It'll never happen. No, never. Maybe one day. Like, he'll, he'll be he'll be too old. He'll age out of it. Of all, I don't know of, who... of, all of our uh, fantasy Batman rogues, I think David Strathairn as Mr. Freeze is the least likely to occur. I actually think Benedict Cumberbatch would be a good Mr. Freeze. He would be a great Mr. Freeze. And it's his time right, right now. Right he needs time. to make some calls. Benedict, it's I assume time. you're listening to this podcast right now. Call your agent and see if you can't get someone to make a Batman movie with you as Mr. Freeze. I feel like a Zack Snyder-controlled Batman movie universe would much, be much, much more more likely to have Mr. Freeze than Christopher Nolan ever was. Yeah. I wouldn't For mind, good I wouldn't and mind bad. the next Batman uh, director to go with some of the more uh, out-there villains in terms of, you know, not as realistic. That doesn't bother me. But if Zack Snyder's in charge, I will be less excited. That's a different... Well, he is in charge of the next Batman movie. Well, he's in charge of the next Superman Batman movie. Because it's like, it's it's really Man of Steel too, right? But it's just gonna happen. Uh, is it? Yeah. Featuring Batman, right? Uh, what if they called it Batman of Steel? Uh. <laughs> um. So, I take it from this conversation. I I know I'm not gonna be watching these pilots, and I take it you will not either. I will not watch any of these shows unless. You know, I I read and hear otherwise because just because I'm I don't want to get invested in the first three episodes and it suck and or maybe it's good but I probably it won't be good enough for me to go like well time to buy Amazon Prime. Do you know Do you know how good Amazon Amazon Prime services are outside of these original shows? I don't. I don't have Amazon Prime. Uh, I have friends who have it and seem to enjoy it. Um, but I don't have it. I just wonder if it would be redundant with a Netflix subscription. I imagine in some regards it would be, and in others, it probably not. A lot of Amazon, it even Prime, a lot of it you have to pay for, right? So, like, you can rent things from them? Is that, is that, see, I don't even know. Amazon. Um... I assume so. You'd have to pay. Well, so like on Netflix, you pay for Netflix and then you get the discs. I know on Amazon, you can rent things. Is it on Prime? If you have Prime, you don't have to pay to rent? I don't know how it works. Clearly, we're not people to have this conversation. Um, But 
I will not be watching Alpha House or Betas. I can't imagine um, that I'll hear enough for either of them to change my mind on that. But we'll see. Uh, and if It looks like you have to get Prime Instant. Oh, which is a whole different thing. I don't know. <laughs> okay, well, we should probably move on. This has been a, a long, meandering news roundup. So let's, let's close that down. And we want to turn and talk about Masters of Sex. Um, it's my favorite new uh, drama of the fall in a landslide. And I think one of the, probably one of the better shows on TV this year. Um, I've been writing about it, not for a BB named, uh, for a different outlet this season. And I've been really enjoying it. Sam, what have you thought about Masters of Sex so far before we get into the uh, nitty gritties on this week's episode? I really enjoy it as well. It's definitely my favorite new show. Uh, of the season and I mean I think that might partly be because I haven't been really blown away by anything new this year um, other than the show I think it's really good um, it's doing the old showtime thing where it's like have a Cracker Jack first season and hope next year is as good um, I think I think kind of what the show has going for it is that it's based on you know real people and real events um, even if it's not keeping to the letter of exactly what happened, I can't speak to that. Um, I think there's kind of like a basic framework that they can look to in their, in like the story of masters and Johnson. Um, so hopefully that'll keep them on track, even though, even though I kind of have, you know, if you know what happens to them, you know, you kind of, you're kind of spoiled because it really happened. You know what's going to happen with this with these people, um, but at the same time, I think it's good that there's kind of like a course that they're going to go down. Yeah, I'm hoping that'll protect the show. It's funny that my biggest worry, and I think it sounds like yours as well, is the network the show is on. Like nothing about the show has me worried. If the show was on, uh, it couldn't be on anything other than HBO. But if the show was on HBO right now, I would. Hey, it could be on Stars, oh, well, man. If it was on Stars, I'd be even more worried. Or Netflix. Uh, if it was on Netflix, I don't know how I'd feel. Netflix doesn't have a proven track record over the long haul yet. Um, but if it was on HBO right now, I'd be ecstatic. But it's on Showtime, a channel that has never, uh, correct me if I'm wrong in this, but it's never produced a show that I can recall that hasn't gone completely off the rails and been pushed far too long. Um, like, all of the Showtime shows that I liked that lasted uh, completely fell apart. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. The ones that fell apart, Weeds, Dexter, Homeland. So we could, Homeland's a whole nother conversation. Because oh, yeah. I kind of, I don't like how they got there, but I like that they did it. You like? I, 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 I missed out on the conversation about the, the twist. Ah, uh, yes. And I guess we're not going to talk about that because yeah. we're talking we about this. That. We did talk about it. And I'm sure we'll talk about Homeland again this season before... Uh, if not before it ends, then after the finale is aired. Uh, so you'll get to say your piece on this season of Homeland. Sure. Um, but as for Masters of Sex, I think it's been a very strong season. Um, it's, you know, I don't think it overdoes, like, the kind of, like, winking at the camera about, like, sex jokes and stuff, where, you know, they could very easily kind of go overboard on that sort of stuff, be- being that it's a period piece and they can go, like, a female orgasm, well, that doesn't exist. Uh, and, like, the audience is like, oh, well, we know the truth. I don't think it really wastes time too much in that. I think it's more interested in, like, 
kind of looking at how people viewed sexuality and studying sexuality at that time. And I think last week's, or I guess this week's episode was a really good example of that in using guest star Allison Janney as Bo Bridges's long suffering wife. Um, Cause she's, as you know, she kind of portrayed a reflection of, you know, women who didn't know, you know, didn't fully understand their bodies and, what they can do. Yeah. All right, Jordan. Um, and I mean, I think we can, we can say right off the bat here that Janie is not surprisingly phenomenal in the episode. Um, she's great. I, I wish, I wish she wasn't on mom so she could just like be on yeah, the show. I, I want her to be the, like the new secretary. I would love, I would love for her to be in this cast. I don't know how many more episodes we get from her this season because presumably it was shot before, uh, you know, I think it was shot before it aired as cable dramas usually are. So there's a there's a decent. It was shot before well, I mean, it, there, it was usually they shoot the entire season before the uh, the first episode airs on these uh-huh. shows. And if that's the case, it could easily have been shot before uh, she got pulled away from mom. So she could be in this season a whole lot. Yeah, and I I feel like it it wouldn't be too difficult to write her off. Well, no, <laughs> but I mean you figure like Allison Brie has been on Community and Mad Men for years. She's not on Mad Men all the time, but she's on Mad Men when they need her. Sure. Um, and I feel like sure. Alice and Janie could play a very similar character on this show. You know, we haven't needed yeah. to see Scully's wife before now. Um, she played a big part in this week's episode and was awesome. And is, I, I think, an immediately very compelling character. Um, I'd love to see her back. But, like, we could go another half season without her, and then she pops up for an episode here and there, and that would be fine, probably. Absolutely. I'll take as much of her as I can get. <laughs> yeah, she was really, like, really standout. Uh, this week um, and I really like you know Michael Sheen is kind of like a bastard and he's kind of cold and I think he plays it off perfectly um, I think also Lizzie Kaplan's doing a good job I think this is kind of off type um, because I feel like she's she's so she's so known as like being more of just like a like a very modern woman like having her play well, like a period role seems kind of weird but I think she's doing a good job playing a modern woman in a different era in this, in, well, I mean, she's in the early '60s. Yeah, but I mean, she, so, her viewpoint is she's very a modern, modern woman. She's a modern time, woman, even like progressive. Sure. Right. Well, she's. I'm, no, when I, I say exactly modern woman, mean, I mean like I, I she's agree a 2000s this is a good type for her. Um, um, one thing I wanted to talk about is I. I sort of feel like, at least in the first half season, which wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me uh, if this changed, but I sort of feel like the the series has been far tilted toward uh, Michael Sheen and Bill Masters. And uh, we've seen Virginia Johnson, Lizzie Kaplan's character, play a, a smaller role than I had expected from uh, the pilot and from the premise of the show. Um, is that just me, or do you do you agree with that? Um, I feel like for the it's mostly uh, Bill Masters. Uh, it's mostly his perspective. I can definitely see that shifting very soon, though. Um just because of what happens with them, um, what we know what happens with them. Um, yeah, I think I thought it would be a little bit more 50-50 than it is, and I, I feel like a lot of the shows about people lusting after Lizzie Kaplan, which I don't think is really the best part of the show. Um, there's that one doctor who's like obsessed with blowjobs. That's, that's kind of tiresome, and how he's just like, He's 
he's like less interesting Pete Campbell and that he's kind of like a dick that everyone I've hates. I've been turned around on him a little bit um, since he started dating uh, Vivian Scully. Um, not in the first episode, but in the second episode when he sort of resigns himself to the idea that like he's going to have to date her for a little while because he took her virginity. Um, I still think he's like, he's a giant dick and like by far my least favorite character, even including like philandering uh, doctor with impetus pro- impotence problems. Uh, but I've been turned around on him a little bit, whereas in the first couple episodes, he was just so transparently a villain that it was like, why are you even here? Yeah, I mean, hopefully they'll make him a little bit more interesting than he's been, but I think I think that comes with time, and I, I'm sure, I think Showtime's it probably has. already picked it up for another season. Um. So I, I I do look forward to seeing how they develop him, and I think I I think early on a lot of the show was about like Bill and uh, Dick Doctor. I, don't, I forget his name. Um, kind of like lusting after Lizzie Kaplan and going like, oh, she's like perfect, and I think they kind of like put her up on this pedestal, which wasn't fair, and. It, it definitely it wasn't the most interesting part. I I really do enjoy Lizzie Kaplan and Michael Sheen together, which is obviously the most important dynamic on the show, and I think they've really nailed that. So I've been really happy, and I'm sure I felt the same way about Dexter and Weeds. So don't yeah. fuck it up, Showtime, I please. Mean, I don't know. I liked I I thought Dexter and Weeds were both very very good in their first seasons, but I don't know if I liked either first season as much as I'm enjoying Masters of Sex. Um, Although such, they're all so different. I mean, it's hard to. And that being said, like I have perfect hindsight now, right? Where I know how wrong everything sure. went. So uh-huh. maybe I did at the time. <laughs> um. So I guess let's let's talk a little bit more in depth about this week's episode. Um. So I'll give my standard spiel about if you do not watch Masters of Sex, if you have not seen uh, this last week's episode, uh, which holds for those of you who don't know exactly what we're talking about. Although, if you don't know that we're talking about the giant Alice and Janney episode, I assume you haven't seen it. Um, if you haven't seen it and don't want to be spoiled, now is the time to skip maybe five, ten minutes ahead and catch up with us uh, when we turn to Movie Club. Uh, with that, Sam, I'm going to take the spoiler gloves off, and you can go ahead and say whatever you'd like about Brave New World or anything from Masters of Sex's first half season so far. The spoiler gloves are off? They're totally off. Maybe they should be on, because you're handling hot spoilers. Uh, maybe they should be on. I don't know. So, the, but the gloves are off is the expression, right? That's... I guess, that, but I don't think that, that's really boxing, used when you're talking. It can't be a boxing expression because you leave the gloves on in boxing. Yeah, but when the gloves are off, it's like... Oh, it's real go, it, Well, yeah, it's like, it's going to hurt more. Okay. Well, these spoilers are going to hurt. I guess. More. If you don't want to be spoiled. I don't know. Just, the gloves are off. Go ahead. Poor Alice and Janney hasn't had an orgasm and has had sex maybe once a year, which definitely means zero times a year because her husband is secretly gay, which at the time is like super, super duper scandalous, especially for someone in his position. Yeah. Um, I think it, it was kind of an interesting wrench they put in the show with Bill kind of blackmailing the provost because it, it makes Bill seem like a super bastard. Um, yeah, especially because you know we'd see we've seen their relationship build up, right? Exactly, um, and how much the provost uh, Scully had done for him. 
Right. Well, they yeah, in that episode, they purposefully built up and showed their relationship over the years, and they're like, this is supposed to hurt a lot for everybody involved, so we're going to make sure you're feeling that too. And it did, and it landed. Yeah. And I felt that same pain just from the other side of the Provost family with Allison Janney's character when, you know, she's clearly so unfulfilled sexually and probably emotionally. He's probably hardly around. Um, and that she goes to the study and she wants, like, she wants to get fucked <laughs> so badly. And I feel so horrible in the interview. And they're like, have you ever had an orgasm? No. It was so sad. I felt so sad. And then the end with her getting fucked in the car by impotent doctor, it felt like a great victory. And it yeah. was, and in other terms, like this is, I feel like the only show where those, those scenarios can play out with those emotional payoffs. I think this show is incredible at, and this, uh, the scene in which Austin, I think is the, is impotent doctor's name. The scene in which Austin and Margaret meet up after Peyton place um, is a perfect example of this. The show's really good at at sort of making make, bringing the audience into the characters' perspectives and making them feel like this this sort of intense immediate attraction and like playing sort of with the with the magic. I think of the moment when when these two people meet. Um, and it is it it felt like like you said like a victory, even though it's two people cheating on their spouses, right? Um, which is a weird and kind of wonderful feeling for the show to play with. <laughs> well, I think the show does a good job in like in breaking down the ideas of what's important to people in that, like the constraints of marriage, like being married is not as important as being like happy and fulfilled, which you can see in Bill's marriage Mm -hmm. in that, like, you know, they're married, but they're both like deeply, deeply unhappy and not satisfied sexually or otherwise, you know, literally sexually in that they're not able to have a baby. And then you see that with Alice and Janney, and it's like you w- you you wish for happiness. Other, you know, the idea of marriage kind of goes out the window, and it's like, oh, this is, should be about like being happy and not about what society tells you you're supposed to want. Which is and, sort of what uh, Virginia has been saying all along. <laughs> yes, well, like we said, she's she is forward thinking. She knows what she's talking about. Another thing I really liked in this episode, and I think the show has actually been doing a really good job with so far, even though it has been fairly focused on masters, and I'd say even more like pretty much focused on on the male characters with the exception of the second episode, which was a Virginia episode. Um, I think it's done a good job of of having Bill sort of like be really excited about the discoveries and yet contend with his own insecurities as a man at the same time. Um, Like this episode, we had him him sort of constantly being put off by the idea of the there being no difference between the types of female orgasm because it rendered men useless in uh, in sex, um, and I like I think the show's done a good job of of showing that he's you know he is a forward thinking scientist but he's also like not perfect and he's very much a man of his time and a product of the society he was brought up in, um, so I've really enjoyed that. Other big things you want to discuss from either Brave New World or the first half season of Masters of Sex so far? Sorry, you were kind of breaking up there. Could you repeat that? Oh, I was just saying I like the way that uh, that Bill has 
has been, I like the way the show's played with Bill's insecurities um, and the way he's sort of allowed to be forward thinking in some ways, but very much a product of society and others. Um, but I was just asking if you had other things you wanted to talk about before we move on. Uh, not really. I think we're running out of time and I want to get to the movie. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I was thinking. So Masters of Sex, we will return to you. Uh, if not before, when you end your season, maybe we'll do a Homeland Masters of Sex uh, episode when both do their finales. Uh, for now, though, I'm really enjoying it. Sam, you're really enjoying it? Yes. Watch. If you guys aren't watching it, go watch Masters of Sex. You'll enjoy it. Um, with that, time for us to return to the Rebunay Movie Club. Uh, I was the one who picked the last one, fortunately, since it's just the two of us here. And Sam, it's actually your turn to announce the next one, so we're in luck in that regard. Um, I picked Withnail and I. Uh, I'll give a similar spoiler warning so that we can talk about the movie uh, right now. I guess let's talk initial thoughts before I do the spoiler warning. So if you haven't seen Withnail and I, you're good for a minute. Uh, Sam, what did you think of the movie? Uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot, I think. Um, I enjoyed it mostly because of the performance of its leads, uh, Paul McGann and... Uh, why am I forgetting his Richard name? Grant. Richard Grant. Um, you know, this is this is a two man show. This is it's basically a three lead movie, but really mostly a two lead movie. Um, and they really carry it. It actually kind of reminded me of something. That it could have been like a play. I think I, it might I have, thought that several times. Yeah. Um, because it's so character driven, and I like that. I like the dynamic between McGann, who plays I, or I think he's Marwood. They don't really. They might mention his name like once in the movie. Um, He's kind of like, he's a little more introverted and not as crazy as Withnail, who's like this huge character who's like heavily drinking and they're both, they're both theatrical, but Withnail much more so. Um, and, you know, the movie, it's not like a plotty movie. It's just them kind of like hanging out, um, being drunk together. Um, yeah, and Richard, I, that, I mean, the plot, insofar as there is one, is they drink in different locations. <laughs> right. Um, and I think Richard Richard Grant carried the movie for me. Um, he's probably the, the main reason why I think it was enjoyable. Um, he's, like, just such an outlandish character, and his reactions towards everyone was fun. Um, the only thing that kind of, like, irked me about the movie was I felt it was kind of... It's like uh, it's mount that it leaned on kind of gay panic humor. I don't think is like aged particularly well. Yeah. Um, it was just like and and it's like it's not a huge part of the movie, but there's like a significant portion of like the middle where it's where Paul McGann is like freaking out about getting fucked in the ass. Um, and I think like it's trying to draw a lot of humor from that, and I don't think that is just like aged particularly well. I think that was something that maybe would have gone for more laughs but that was the thing people laughed at, I guess. But um you know, there's I think there is like a lot of good humor in this movie. Um and I like Richard Griffiths. He plays Monty who's I think Richard Grant's uncle who is he's gay and he is horny and he wants to fuck. Um <laughs> You know, I thought he was good in it. I just, I don't think it was the best uh, gay character that's ever been portrayed on screen. Uh, 
Um, they do they they do a little work toward the end. We'll talk about that once we take the spoiler gloves off. They do a little bit toward the end to redeem him, but I'll agree that it's like there's it's pretty gay panicky for some stretches. Um, but other than that, I that was that's like my only real complaint with the movie. Um, it just it I just like the 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 kind of hangout quality of it, and I feel like if you're gonna do a movie where there's no plot to kind of you know to take the audience's attention, your your leads have to, like, really deliver. And I think Brandon McGann did deliver. I think they did a great job. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree. I, I really liked the movie. Um, I, I, I think I have the same major problem with it that you do in the in its gay panic elements, but it didn't... That wasn't too, too much of the movie, really, and it definitely, like... The rest of the movie was so charming and so effective that I really liked it. I think... There was a great balance between sort of like black humor and and more dramatic elements, and I think uh, Paul McGann and Richard Grant especially just play the hell out of their roles. I mean, they're both fantastic in it, and, and I mean they're they're fortunately playing actors, so they're allowed to go kind of big a lot of the time. And Richard Grant just knocks the walls off the place uh, as with nail. Uh, he, I mean, he alone is worth the price of admission. He's fantastic. He's you know. He's got this scathing black wit, and he's just, he's this clearly miserable person who's sort of trying to drag the world down with him, and he's drowning his sorrows in, in whatever he can find to drink, uh, including lighter fluid. Um, and, you know, he's constantly smoking, and he's just this, he's this very, very big character, and Grant just fills the screen and takes, and, you know, walks away with the movie. Paul again sort of plays... I can't even, he's not really a straight man, but he's a straight man by comparison, just because of how big Grant yeah, he's, is. Yeah, he's like kind of a foil. I yeah. Think. And he, he plays uh, that very well. And I think it's really, you know, this is, for it's, in its most effective parts, it's sort of a, a boozy buddy movie about, like, the dangers of alcoholism and these two not-that-happy people uh, on this sort of rambling, ambling adventure. Uh, and it's, it's fun... And it's sort of depressing, and it's funny. Uh, I really liked it. So why don't we, we why don't we shift into the uh, spoiler territory so that we can talk about some of the things specifically that we liked and didn't like. So uh, if you have not seen with Neil and I, go ahead and skip ahead uh, to the very end of the show, or you know what, come back next week. We'll still be here. Uh, Sam, I'm going to remove the spoiler gloves, and we can talk about whatever you'd like. Um, I want to talk about the end. Let's talk about the end if we're going to talk about... Uh, yeah, that's a good place to start for spoilers. <laughs> Fuck the beginning. Yeah. Let's talk about... Fuck that. Let's talk about the end. What do you think of the end? Um, I loved it. The la- I mean, the, the very the very end where uh, Richard Grant is giving the, the speech, the soliloquy from Hamlet to the hyenas in the zoo and just sort uh-huh. of wanders off drunkenly with his bottle in his hand it was phenomenal. Uh, I really liked... I think... So, I mean, A, it's autobi- like the film is autobiographical uh, from its writer-director in a lot of ways, uh, and this is how it ended, but it, it was the appropriate ending, I think, that I uh, marked the movie, even though he isn't ever directly called that in the movie. I think it's written down on an envelope at some point or something, but uh, Marwood kind of learns that he needs to get away from this, and he wants to move into the next part of his life. He finally gets a part, and he moves out, so he no longer lives with, 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 with Nail. With with nail is hard to say, by the way. Um, I think that's that's probably the 
best place to end the story. It allows uh, Marwood to have a bit of an arc, even though the film's not really as interested in how he develops. It's more interested in, in sort of what he's leaving behind, I guess. Uh, but I, I thought the ending was really good, really effective. Uh, and especially, like, again, Grant just plays the hell out of that monologue at the end. Um, so you get a little Shakespeare on your way out the door. What did you think? Actually, it reminded me a lot of Itumama um, Tambien, in that it's like, it's a friendship that isn't built to last, and I think, in the case of this movie, it, it feels like, you know, from the beginning, it seems like Paul McGann wants to, like, get away from uh, Withnell. Yeah. And I think Richard Grant needs him more than McGann needs... Uh, Richard Grant, and that that's like what makes the ending so tragic, I think. It's because, you know, when Withnell is with Marwood, he's like a fun, crazy guy. But when he's by himself, he's like, he's a pathetic, alcoholic guy who's going to just drink himself to death. Like, I think, like, the context of their friendship, it's the difference between, like, a farce, which is what, like, a large part of this movie was and like a tragedy in that, you know, this with guy, he's like never going to act ever because he's such a drunk. He's like, he's so alone. And I don't think anyone would put up with him other than Paul McGann. And even the, you, you know, you see those guys, uh, the, I cannot be killed by conventional weapons guy. Uh, and the other guy smoking weed with them at the end. It's like, they're not his friends. Like McGann was, I think. Yeah, there are, there are guys who show up occasionally right. to sell him drugs. Yes. So there's, like, this extreme loneliness at the end with the rain. I mean, you know, the, the rain coming down in buckets just to really, like, drill how sad this is home. Um, I mean, it, I thought it was very effective, the end. It felt very, very lonely, and I think good choice in just having the movie end with him kind of just walking away and then we kind of leave with the credits rolling on the field. I thought that was very effective and it felt, it felt lonely. It was an unhappy ending, even though Marwood is like going to be a lead in something. And it's the end of, it's the end of a friendship, which is more important. And maybe the end of with Noel's or the beginning of his demise. Yeah. I mean, we have no idea how long with going to last. I think, I think uh, the person, the actual person who with based on, Died young, but not nearly as young as Withnell is. I think he died at, like, 50. Um, that sounds about right. I mean... Yeah. Although, I don't know. Like, Withnell no, could easily go on a bender and end up dead right, five right. minutes after this movie. <laughs> right, but Withnell seems like someone who's not going to, like, make his 60s. He's, like, one of those yeah. guys. He's not, he's not seeing old no. age. Um, yeah, so I, I, I think... Another thing I wanted to talk about uh, a little bit is is the way the movie balances the the black comedic elements and uh, the the tragedy because I think it does like those two mix well together but I think it mixes them very well together and and especially I think in comparison to when it tries to be more of a farce um, which is mostly uh, just in the gay panic elements that we've sort of already alluded to that extended sequence uh late at night in the country house where uh monty is doing his best to seduce uh i marwood um and that that like it worked for me narratively i think because 
they actually, there's a nice sting at the end where it's sort of like Monty feels like he's betrayed with Null, even though he hasn't. And he's sort of like a really sad, lonely guy like they are who just wanted to be with someone. Um, and that worked for me, but I, I didn't find the farcical elements of it as, as funny as I think I was intended to because it was basically a gay panic storyline and it didn't work too well for me. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I think, yeah, they definitely redeemed Richard Griffith's character as he's not like, he's not insane, but up until when he found out about you know, when McGann lies about having the relationship with Whitnell, he was insane. He was like, he was a lustful cock monster, as they say. Yeah, and he was just, I mean, he was a, he was a caricature <laughs> of, of the gay man who won't take no for an answer. Right. Which is like a fairly pernicious caricature that I think hopefully we've mostly aged out of, although that's clearly not true in, in some areas of our cinema. Still. Well, I think, I mean, I think part of my problem with it was that I think there's like a degree of scorn that the two main characters took with him for just the fact that he was gay. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, it's, it's worth mentioning the movie is set in 1969, sure. uh, which is a very different time with very different attitudes toward homosexuality than even the late eighties when it was made. Uh, although those were not particularly, uh, friendly times either for gay rights. Yeah, the eighties. So, I mean, not smooth sailing. No, I mean not <laughs> in uh, in England even any more than in America, really. Yeah. So not a, not a great time to be gay. Um, and also, I guess it's worth mentioning that uh, apparently the writer director of the film had a similar experience when he was playing uh, Benvolio in Franco Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet, and Zeffirelli apparently came out to him in a very similar fashion. So I guess. I guess it's sort of based in fact, but it still, it feels squicky to me. It, yeah, I mean, I don't think that really changes anything for me. No, um, I, me either. It's, it's like, the storyline, like, you can have a story uh, of being too sexually forward, but the way that it's played in the movie doesn't work at all for me. Um, I mean, no. the, the farcical nature of it, it just, it feels off, and it, the laughs didn't land there for me. Yeah. But, you know, luckily that's just, like, a slice of the movie. Yeah, that's, I mean, maybe it's 10 not... or 15 minutes of the movie is taken up with this. The rest of it is mostly, like, uh, the two characters hanging out in London, deciding to go to the country, sort of... Scavenging. Yeah, not place. handling being in the country very well for a while, and then eventually going back to London and not handling that particularly well either. Yeah, they don't handle much well. No. They're not that together. They're really not very together as people. Uh... And sometimes it's fun to watch, and sometimes it's very scary to watch as they sort of fall apart. Yes, and... I guess, do you think there's, like, a sort of uh, tragic element to I cutting his hair at the end? Because this is, like, you know, it takes place in 1969, I think. Yeah, well... So it's, like, the end of the 60s, like... So the big... As we're going to call him, because I forget the actor's name, I cannot be killed by conventional weapons guy from Wayne's World 2. I like that we're calling calling him that, that. because that's one of the most amazing lines in movies ever. One of my favorite jokes in anything ever, I think. (laughs) Um, But he gives the speech about, A, he says, like, you know, 90 days left of the 60s and there's going to be a lot of refugees. He gives that speech. But he also gives the speech at the beginning about, like, don't get a haircut. Like, your hair is your connection to everything. Your hair is your connection to the universe. That's why bald men are so uptight. 
So, like, the movie begins with him basically saying, like, don't get a haircut. It's gonna fuck up your whole vibe. And right. ends with Marwood sort of rejecting the whole uh, culture of excess that he'd been involved with and cutting his hair. So, yeah, I think that's a big deal. Um, and tragic in some sense, yes, but, like, I don't know that it's so much repudiating 60s culture as it is repudiating the, like, alcoholic uh, poverty that, that Marwood's been living in. <laughs> It never really felt to me. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it's the sadness I feel for it is like it's it's distancing himself from Whitmill, yeah. um, and it's going like you still have your long hair, I'm moving on, but you're still kind of in the gutter. Oh yeah, I mean, and that felt that felt very sad to me. There was like friendship over, as you like to say. Yeah, it, it's that, the ending of this movie is very clearly a friendship over moment, but. Unlike usually when I say it, like, I don't see these <laughs> two meeting up for a drink next week. I think, like, they're kind of done. Right. Um, and that's that's definitely very sad, but it's also, like, how far down the rabbit hole, how far in the downward spiral will uh, Marwood allow Withnail to, to drag him before he pulls himself out, you know? They both want to mm. be actors. Marwood gets an offer of a part, and he takes it, you know? We see Withnail get an offer to be an understudy, earlier in the movie and he's so insulted and uh finds it such an affront to his dignity as an actor to be an understudy that he refuses but uh marwood gets an opportunity and he jumps at it uh yeah so sort of the the end of the 60s vibe uh i liked although um yeah actually i just liked it i think i think it was a beautiful little speech at the end of the movie and the haircut thing worked out well and provided some nice sort of bookends, I guess, to, to the movie. Um, we probably don't want to run too much longer because we're already over what we like to go. Any last thoughts on the movie? Uh, just overall, I enjoyed it. Um, and if anyone was listening to us talk that hadn't seen it, shame on you for listening through the spoilers, but you should go watch the movie, I think. Uh, it's on Netflix Watch Instantly. Two great performances and lots of Doctor Who-ness to go around. Um, of course, Paul McGann played uh, the Eighth Doctor, and uh, Richard Grant was on the latest season. And I think he played the Doctor in like um, like yeah, audio. Yeah, Richard Grant played the Doctor in audio. He's he was the Great Intelligence on the on the last season of Doctor Who. We also have Richard Griffiths. For those of you who don't know his name, is Vernon Dursley from the Harry Potter movies. Is Uncle Monty, um, and he's. He's good in it, given the character he has to play, which is, again, sort of a gay caricature. Um, that he, he hits the emotional beats well. Um, and yeah, you can watch I Cannot Be Killed by a Conventional Weapons guy basically playing the same character. I feel like... he. I was so happy to see him that he just talks like that. Like, that is his character. And I don't know if maybe... Uh, when they got him for Wayne's World, they wanted him to do that similar guy, or if that's just what he does. Yeah, I'm not sure. Like, I, these are the two performances of his I've seen, so I'm not sure if now when I watch Wayne's World two, it'll be very clear to me that it's a with Mill and I joke, um, or if that's just his thing. Either way, he's amazing. If these are like these, could be his only two performances, and I love him. Uh, yeah, so I guess before we shut down, I will say as well, I really enjoyed the movie. I think you should all watch the movie uh, if you're still listening and haven't watched it, which I'll echo Sam's shame. Uh, it's really good. There, the, the negative elements that we discussed are there, but 
they didn't derail the movie for me, and it's got two very strong central performances, and yeah, a lot of, just, even if, even if not for the strength, it's a lot of fun to see these people all in a room together. Uh, so Sam, now it's time for you to announce our next movie club movie. I think I have to have it announced if you tell me if you've watched the movie that I just messaged uh, you. There you go. I have told you. Great. We got a movie for next time. Our next movie club movie is 1973's Serpico, starring one young upstart named Al Pacino. He would never go anywhere. He's an undercover cop. No, Serpico was the last movie he made. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's right. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see the the last film role of of young upstart Al Pacino. But this is, you know, this is one that I've had on my list for a long, long time. Um, I'm always interested to see a uh, good young Al Pacino because old weird Al Pacino is very weird. <laughs> um, and I know, like, he's a great actor, obviously, you know, from seeing the Godfather movies. Um, but it's good to see him, like, being an actor, not, like, a crazy person on screen, if that makes any sense. I think it does, and Serpico's also been on my list for a while, so this is a... I, I qualify as a good pick. Acceptable. Uh, not, not that I have any veto power good. in the situation, but uh, I'm looking forward to it. So we're going to watch Let's Serpico. Do it. As per usual, that'll be roughly uh, three, four episodes from now. We will let you know, uh, and we'll remind you... Uh, if I remember, I'll remind you the week before we do it so that you can all watch Serpico and be a part of the conversation with us. Um, as always, you can reach out to us to talk about, you know, with Noah and I, you can talk about Serpico as we get closer to uh, that with us um, or anything in particular you want to talk about at reviewname.com in the comment sections. You can talk to us uh, via email at reviewname at gmail.com on Twitter at reviewnamed. There are plenty of ways. Find one, reach out, tell us what you're thinking. Um, with that, this has been the Review Be Name Podcast. I have been Jordan, and my thumbs have gone here.